Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The standard of care for primary treatment of multiple myeloma has been a three-drug regimen followed by autologous stem cell transplant. Recent literature supporting use of four drug induction regimens have now provided additional options. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network Multiple Myeloma Panel includes both three-drug and four-drug regimens into their treatment algorithm with no clear guidance on which to choose. Here to help us through this dilemma is Dr. Sidney Schultz, an oncology pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, by reviewing recent literature to determine when these four drug regimens should be used. During today's presentation, we will identify signs, symptoms, and diagnostic criteria for myeloma. We will review pharmacology of medications used specifically as primary treatment for myeloma, and lastly, we'll discuss recent literature regarding these four drug regimens and apply that to a patient case. And so what is multiple myeloma? It's a malignant neoplasm of our plasma cells that, ac that accumulate in the bone marrow. If we think back to our process of hematopoiesis, we have our B lymphocytes that stem from our common lymphoid progenitor pathway. And these B lymphocytes produce plasma cells that then secrete antibodies, which are also referred to as immunoglobulins, so IgG, IgA, and IgM. Under normal conditions, our bone marrow consists of about 5% plasma cells, and the antibodies they produce are vital for our immune system. However, in the setting of multiple myeloma and other plasma cell dyscrasias, we have an increased production of plasma cells, and thus an increased production of our antibodies and immunoglobulins. However, in this setting, these immunoglobulins are non-functional. Multiple myeloma is relatively rare. It accounts for about 10% of all of our hematologic malignancies with an annual incidence of 4.3 per 100,000 people, which will result in about 20,000 new cases of multiple myeloma in the United States each year. It is um, more common in men and twice as common in African Americans, and that's due to an increased incidence of underlying monoclonal gammopathies. It's most frequently diagnosed in our older um, population with a median age of 65 to 75 years, and currently has an estimated five-year survival of about 55%. And something to keep in mind as we continue through this presentation is that even despite all of these advances, and even in the setting of transplantation, myeloma still remains incurable. The classic myriad of symptoms that patients with multiple myeloma can present with is commonly referred to as our CRAB criteria, and this really indicates the potential end organ damage that we can see in this patient population. So starting with the C, which stands for calcium, so the plasma cells not only produce antibodies and immunoglobulins, but they also produce other factors into our blood, such as IL-1 and IL-6. And both of these factors can increase our osteoclast activity, which leads to an increase in bone turnover. And that bone turnover results in hypercalcemia, which in this setting is defined as a corrected calcium of greater than 11.5. And this really goes hand in hand with the bone disease that we see as well. That increase in bone turnover can weaken our bones, thus predisposing them to osteolytic lesion formation. It's estimated that about 80% of patients with myeloma do present with those osteolytic lesions seen on imaging. They're most commonly occurring in the spine. And about 30% of patients will even present with a pathological fracture. 
The renal dysfunction that we see is also from the accumulation of antibodies. So those antibodies can deposit in different portions of the kidney, thus leading to renal dysfunction. And that's defined here as a serum creatinine of greater than 2 or a creatinine clearance of less than 40. And then finally, we have anemia. And this is just due to a crowding of the bone marrow. We end up with such a high percentage of plasma cells that our other cell lines, such as our red blood cells and our platelets, become depleted. So we can not only see anemia, but we can also see thrombocytopenia in these patients. And so if our patients do present with any one of those CRAB criteria, we may be um, suspicious for an underlying plasma cell dyscrasia, and thus we will begin the following workup process. So laboratory studies are really to assess for any of that end organ damage. So a CBC to assess for anemia, um, a CMP to assess our electrolytes and renal function, but we'll also be getting an LDH and a beta-2 microglobulin, both for staging. The next step is to analyze our serum and urine, specifically for quantitative levels of our immunoglobulins, so the IgA, the IgM, and the IgG. And in the setting of myeloma, these are both increased in our blood, but also in our urine, as they are processed by our kidneys. And we'll not only get these levels at diagnosis, but it's also one of our markers for how well patients are responding to treatment. So it is something that we will track over time. The next step is a free light chain assay. So if we think back to the structure of our antibodies, those are consisted of heavy chains and then our light chains as well. And our plasma cells in the setting of myeloma actually produce an excess of the free light chains that end up in our urine. Those are referred to as Bentz-Jones proteins. And getting a free light chain assay is an important marker for documenting response to treatment. The next step is imaging, which is typically a skeletal survey to assess for any of those osteolytic lesions being present. And that can be done via a CT scan or even a PET. And then bone marrow evaluation is also crucial, as that's one of our major diagnostic criterion for diagnosing active myeloma. And the last step here is cytogenetic studies. So cytogenetic studies are really crucial um, in documenting whether our patients have any what are considered to be high-risk cytogenetics versus those that would incur a standard risk. And it's important to know if our patients have any of these high-risk cytogenetics. As in previous trials, they have been associated with lower overall response rates to treatment and shorter durations of response, so a shorter progression-free survival and a shorter overall survival. Some of our more common high-risk cytogenetics include the 17P13 deletion, but also multiple translocations, such as 414, 1416, and 1420. Um, on the other side of the graphic here, we have um, two cytogenetics that are, so that are associated with standard risk, and those include translocation 1114 and 614. And so once our workup process is complete, we can stage patients on this spectrum of plasma cell malignancies. Um, so MGUS, which is monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, and smoldering myeloma, both kind of representing our pre-symptomatic, pre-active myeloma settings. And it's important to have active surveillance with our patients of MGUS and smoldering myeloma as their risk of progression to an active myeloma is higher than um, patients without these underlying dyscrasias. So patients with MGUS have about a 1% cumulative risk per year of progressing to an active myeloma. And our patients with smoldering have an even higher risk of sometimes up to 5 to 10% per year. But really, for the rest of the presentation, we're going to be focusing on patients that meet the criteria for active myeloma, which is defined as having a bone marrow plasma cell concentration of greater than 60%, or it can be greater than 10% in conjunction with a myeloma-defining event, which is most likely one of our CRAB criteria. And so this brings us to our first Poll Everywhere question. So if you have a smartphone, you can pull that out. You can also respond online or over text message. 
And so the question here is, which of the following cytogenetic studies is considered to be high risk in the setting of multiple myeloma? Option A is a KRAS mutation. Option B is a solitary 13Q deletion. Option C is 17P13 deletion. And option D is the translocation of 1114. Okay, so starting to see some answers come through, majority being for option C, the 17P13 deletion, which is the correct answer here. To backtrack, KRAS mutation, which no one shows, is a much more common um, genetic finding in our solid tumors, so lung and colorectal, for example. Solitary 13Q deletion has prognostic um, associations in some of our leukemia diagnoses. 17P13 deletion is true. That is a high-risk cytogenetic finding for our patients with multiple myeloma. And then option D, um, translocation of 1114, is commonly seen in the setting of myeloma. However, that is one of our standard risk findings. So as already alluded to previously, improvements in the survival for patients with multiple myeloma in the past decade, but really dating back to the approval of bortezomib in 2003, have really changed and led to significant improvements in overall survival, making the treatment of myeloma really the treatment of a chronic condition at this point. And so in the last 15 to 17 years, we have seen the approval of many new medications, creating new combination options and new regimens and ways to treat our patients better and more efficiently, leading to better overall response and greater durations of response. And you can see how quickly it's changing. Even in the year 2021, we already have approval of CAR-T therapy and melphalan flufenamide as well. And so before we jump into the specific medication classes that we'll use to treat primary, um, primary treatment of multiple myeloma, I wanted to first create kind of a framework for how our guidelines would recommend that we do so at this point. And so starting with our NCCN or our National Comprehensive Cancer Network guideline recommendations, it is first important to decide whether our patients are transplant eligible or ineligible, as that is going to drastically change our initial management of those patients. But keeping in mind that with, an, with a median age at diagnosis of about 70, some of our patients, especially if they have comorbidities, may be too frail to be eligible to undergo transplant. However, if the decision has been made that our patients are transplant eligible, then per the NCC guidelines, they then list five different induction regimens that would be options for them, where two are listed as preferred, and then three others are listed as kind of other recommended options. And the preferred regimens include VRD, which is Velcade, Revlimid, and Dexamethasone, and then Cybor-D, which is Cyclophosphamide, Bortezomib, and Dexamethasone. And then under our other recommended, we see two other of our proteasome inhibitor triplets, so KRD and IRD. And we also see the inclusion here of our first quadruplet regimen, so daratumumab in conjunction with VRD. However, it's currently not listed as a preferred option. When we compare that to the treatment guideline algorithm here at Mayo Clinic for our transplant eligible patients, we break patients down based on if they have standard risk cytogenetics, so that translocation 1114, for example. And for those patients, the recommendation is to use VRD as induction regimen. We compare that to our high-risk patients, so example, the 17P13 deletion. Those patients, that's when Mayo Clinic recommends utilizing the quadruplet regimen of daratumumab VRD. Then we compare all of that to the patients who are deemed ineligible for transplant. So looking back at our NCCN guidelines first, here we have even more regimens that are included in the guideline recommendation, where we have six different regimens being listed as preferred or other recommended. And so we still have all three of our proteasome inhibitor triplets, so VRD, KRD, and IRD. 
But now we have the introduction of a daratumumab triplet, so daratumumab, revlimid, and dexamethasone. But we don't see the inclusion of a quadruplet regimen really listed as a preferred or other recommended treatment at this point in our transplant ineligible patients. We then compare that again to the treatment algorithm that exists here at Mayo Clinic. And for patients that are transplant ineligible, here at Mayo Clinic, we recommend a triplet with either daratumumab or Velcade in conjunction with revlimid dexamethasone. So the first class of medications that I want to dive into um, in a little bit more detail is our alkylating agents. The two most common alkylating agents that are utilized here in the United States are cyclophosphamide and melphalan. And these agents act during all phases of the cell cycle. They act directly on our DNA, creating crosslinks between our guanine residues, which leads to strand breaking, um, inhibition of cell division, and eventually leads to cell apoptosis. Some of our class-associated uh, class side effects include bone marrow suppression, alopecia, and gastrointestinal effects such as nausea and mucositis, where mucositis is really more heavily associated with melphalan, especially when it's used in high doses in our bone marrow transplant patients. The next class of medication is our proteasome inhibitors. There are currently three available on the market, including bortezomib with the brand name of Velcade, so that's why you'll see it referred to as V in our treatment mnemonics, carfilzomib with the brand name of um, Kyprolis, and then ixazomib with the brand name of Ninlaro. And these three agents do differ slightly in toxicity profile, but most uniquely in their route of administration, where bortezomib is available as an intravenous or a subcutaneous administration, where the subcutaneous has really become the preferred route, and that's due to a non-inferior effect on efficacy, but a superior effect on our safety outcomes, specifically with peripheral neuropathy, which has historically been a dose-limiting toxicity of bortezomib. Carfilzomib is currently only available as an intravenous administration, and then ixazomib is our only oral proteasome inhibitor. And these medications work by inhibiting proteasome, which leads to a number of pathways being affected, but most primarily the NF-kappa-beta pathway, which is one of our most um, highly active pro-survival pathways for our myeloma cells. So thus, inhibition of the NF-kappa-beta leads to cell apoptosis of our plasma cells. Some of our class-wide effects include cytopenias, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and then peripheral neuropathy, which is mostly associated with bortezomib and leastly associated with carfilzomib. The next class of medications is our immunomodulatory agents. So these are commonly referred to as our imids. And this all started with thalidomide, which was pretty infamous back in the 1950s um, for causing fetal harm when it was given to pregnant women for anti-emetic benefit. And despite being pulled from the market and re-added, it has been found to have antineoplastic benefits that were positive in myeloma cells. And so this really led to a surge um, to find an analog of thalidomide that would have increased potency but decreased toxicity that we saw when thalidomide was more commonly used. And so this led to the approval of both lenalidomide in 2006 and later pomalidomide. And so lenalidomide is really our workhorse emid here in the United States for those reasons described above. And these medications have their anti-tumor effect by binding directly to ubiquitin ligase complex protein. This modulates multiple downstream pathways that lead to anti-neoplastic, anti-angiogenic, pro-erythropoietic, and anti-immunomodulatory effects. And all of those combine, leading to tumor cell death. Some of our side effects associated with this class of medications include skin rash, constipation, and diarrhea, and also increased risk of thrombosis. So something to keep in mind if you have a patient on an immunomodulatory agent for multiple myeloma is that they should be on some type of um, thrombosis 
um, prophylaxis. And what's unique in the setting of multiple myeloma is as long as they don't have any other risk factors, these patients, VTE prophylaxis can be a baby aspirin daily. Lastly, our anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies. There are currently two approved, and that includes daratumumab and isatuximab. So CD38 is a transmembrane glycoprotein that is commonly overexpressed on our multiple myeloma cells. And so by binding to the CD38 receptors on our plasma cells, that leads to different cell-mediated immune responses, all leading to tumor cell death. Some of our toxicities associated with this class of medications include infusion reactions, fatigue, and nausea. And multiple myeloma is also unique in the fact that it has its own set of response criteria in, in addition to progression-free survival and overall survival that we're used to seeing in some of our other hematologic and, onco and oncologic malignancies. And so two terms that you'll hear when we get into the literature portion of the presentation is depth of response and duration of response. And so literature will report um, the number of patients experiencing an overall response. However, it's really crucial that we break down that overall response to determine what type of response or what level of depth of response our patients are actually achieving. So three of them listed in this table include a stringent complete response, a complete response, and a very good partial response. Where a stringent complete response represents our greatest level of depth of response, and that has been associated with longer durations of response than patients that may achieve a very good partial response, for example. And so the greater level of depth of response typically correlates with a longer duration. And so that's really what we're going for when treating these patients. And then finally, minimal residual disease negativity, which is the bottom row of this table, or MRD negativity, is one of our surrogate endpoints for overall survival. So you'll see in the literature that we report that oftentimes by the time literature is published, the data is not mature enough to be able to report overall survival or sometimes even progression-free survival results. And so that's when we can really look to MRD negativity to become that surrogate endpoint to point to potential benefit in overall survival. And this is, this is um, assessed via flow cytometry, and it's defined as presence of one plasma cell or less in 100,000 normal cells. And so this now brings us to our second Poll Everywhere question. So again, pulling out the smartphones or the internet or texting. So the question here is, which of the following statements regarding treatment of multiple myeloma is true? A, autologous transplant is the only curable treatment. B, intravenous bortezomib is preferred to subcutaneous administration due to lower rates of peripheral neuropathy. C, regimens containing an immunomodulatory agent require HSV prophylaxis. Or D, VRD is a preferred first-line regimen for both transplant-eligible and ineligible patients. Okay, so seeing a lot of answers come in and answers shifting kind of around the four options, so we'll go through them in a little bit of depth. Um, option A, autologous transplant is the only curable option, is incorrect. In myeloma, regardless of what type of treatment, regardless of any of the treatments we talk about today, it does unfortunately remain incurable. Option B is incorrect. It's actually the subcutaneous administration of bortezomib that has been found to have a decrease in the incidence of peripheral neuropathy. Option C is also incorrect. So our immunomodulatory agents require VTE prophylaxis, not HSV prophylaxis. And then option D, which we did have the majority of responders ultimately landing on that option, is correct. So Velcade, Revlimid, Dexamethasone 
is a preferred treatment option in the Mayo guidelines as well as NCCN guidelines for either transplant eligible or ineligible patients. And really the main reason why VRD is the standard of care currently in the United States is from this SWOG-S0007 study. This was published back in 2017 and analyzed the comparison of VRD as a triplet in comparison to the doublet of just Revlimid and Dexamethasone alone. And this was specifically in the setting of primary treatment for transplant eligible patients. And so this is really to show you all that the idea of adding an additional agent to our induction regimen is not new in the setting of multiple myeloma. Really in the last five to 10 years, we have the same exact question that we're trying to answer today, but looking at our doublets and potentially using a triplet instead. And so from the four trials here, in addition to, other, to many other trials, that is why currently triplets are recommended over doublets. And so now the rest of the presentation is gonna focus on, well, should we add a fourth drug to this standard of care triplet and turn that into a quadruplet regimen? And so the first trial that we will discuss today is the Alcyone trial, which was published in 2018. This was a phase three randomized control trial that took place in Europe. They randomized 706 patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. And they were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion. This was stratified based on myeloma staging as well as the presence of high-risk cytogenetics. And patients were randomized to either receive a triplet regimen of VMP, which is Velcade, Malfolan, and Prednisone. This study did take place in Europe. And over in Europe, VMP is one of their standard induction regimens. And patients were receiving the VMP for nine cycles, or they were receiving daratumumab in conjunction with the VMP, so the quadruplet regimen for nine cycles. Patients were given these cycles continuously, and they were all deemed transplant ineligible. At the end of the nine cycles, the patients on the triplet arm received no maintenance, just active surveillance. And patients who received the quadruplet arm with daratumumab were continued on daratumumab as maintenance therapy. And the primary endpoint for this trial was progression-free survival, and that was defined as time from randomization to either disease progression or death. So when looking at our baseline characteristics, overall they were very well balanced between our two treatment arms. We had a median age of patients of 71 years, which does fit our transplant ineligible, possibly more frail patient population. They had an ECOG score or a performance score, most of them of zero or one, but with the inclusion of some patients with a two. And then high-risk cytogenetics were present in about 15% of patients, and again, um, well-balanced between our triplet and quadruplet. Now, to orient you to this graph a little bit, um, the x-axis represents our different levels of depth of response that we discussed previously. So our overall response represents any patients who responded, and then the three first sets of bar graphs represent the different types of response within our responders. So stringent complete response being our deepest level of response, and then the level of depth decreasing as we move um, from left to right. And then the y-axis represents our patients in a percentage form. And so here you can see, when specifically looking at overall response, that we did have a significant improvement in overall response for our patients that received our quadruplet therapy of DARA-VMP. And that was 91% versus 74%. And this was statistically significant with a p-value of less than 0.001. When we break down the type of response, Again, I point you to stringent complete response since that's our deepest level of response. And again, there we had a higher proportion of patients in our quadruplet arm being able to achieve that highest level of depth than patients that were just on the triplet. When we look at our primary outcome of progression-free survival, 
we again see a benefit in our quadruplet arm of 36.4 months versus 19.3 months in the triplet. Overall survival is something that's being assessed. It was most recently assessed at a 36-month follow-up, and it had not been reached in either of our patient groups. However, you can see from the percentages listed there that overall survival is also favoring the use of our quadruplet regimen in comparison to the triplet. Finally, when we break down some of our subgroup analyses, so this included patients' um, subgroup analyses based on age, based on presence of high-risk cytogenetics, et cetera, we found favorable results across all the subgroups favoring our quadruplet, except for patients with those high-risk cytogenetics. And here we actually saw a hazard ratio that crossed one. It still slightly favored the quadruplet arm, but not significantly compared to some of those other subgroups that were analyzed. We do have to keep in mind that we only had about 15% of patients in this trial who did have presence of high-risk cytogenetics, so it was a decently small patient population. And again, this was just subgroup analyses. Um, however, further literature is definitely warranted to see if this same type of lack of benefit is seen in further trials. When looking at our safety outcomes, the most common adverse events that occurred amongst both groups were neutropenia, infection, and peripheral neuropathy. And the percentages listed here are rates of grade 3 or 4 toxicity. And so you can see that the rates of neutropenia did not differ too much. However, we did have um, an increase of about 9% in the rate of infection when looking at our quadruplet regimen. Most of these infections were upper respiratory, and mortality due to infection did not differ between the two groups. Peripheral neuropathy is one of our dose-limiting toxicities for Velcade, which is included in both. And I list it here really to show that the addition of daratumumab did not worsen or increase the incidence of neuropathy. And then finally, infusion reactions is kind of our hallmark reaction when adding daratumumab. And grade 3 incidence of infusion reaction occurred in about 5% of patients. This most commonly occurred during cycle 1 and much less commonly after cycle 2. And so what are our takeaways from the Alcyone trial? Well, firstly, we did see that our quadruplet regimen of DARA VMP did significantly improve not only progression-free survival, but rates of overall survival as far out as 36 months. The addition of daratumumab did not significantly impact our safety results. However, something to keep in mind is that VMP is not equivalent to VRD, which is the standard induction regimen utilized in the United States. Yes, we still have Velcade in both regimens. However, trying to compare the potency, toxicity, and mechanistic profile of melphalan to Revlimid is really not something that we can do. And so these results were not easily transferable into our patients in the United States, and it made application of this trial a little bit difficult. So the next trial that we're going to talk about is the Cassiopeia trial. This was published in 2019. And again, this was a randomized phase 3 controlled trial that included 1,085 patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. One major way in which this differed from the Alcyone trial that we just finished talking about is that all of the patients in this trial were deemed transplant eligible. And so patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion, again stratified by age and presence of risk factors to receive either induction therapy with our quadruplet of daratumumab in conjunction with VTD, so Velcade, thalidomide, and dexamethasone, in comparison to just our triplet alone as induction. After the four cycles of induction, patients were then um, sent for autologous stem cell transplant, and then post-transplant, they were continued on two cycles of consolidation treatment with the same regimen that they received as induction. At the end of our consolidation, 
That is when our primary endpoint of stringent complete response was assessed, and this was assessed 100 days post the end of our consolidation therapy. Of note, for maintenance therapy, patients who had at least a partial response or better to their consolidation were randomized in a second phase of this trial that we won't discuss today to either receive daratumumab maintenance or active surveillance. Again, looking at baseline characteristics, we do see a younger patient population here, keeping in mind that they were all deemed transplant eligible. Otherwise, we had a higher percentage of patients of about 90% with an ECOG of 0 or 1, with 50% having an ECOG of 0, meaning that they were a very fit patient population. And again, about 15% incidence of our high-risk cytogenetics. And so the graphic depiction of response rates does look a little bit different here than it did when we discussed the LCON trial. And this is because investigators assessed response at three different times. They assessed response after induction, after transplantation, and then 100 days after transplantation, which was our primary endpoint. And really this was to see that if we tracked patients over time, were our levels of depth and duration of response improving or not? And so you can see when we compare our response rates for our triplet on the left to our quadruplet on the right, that we not only have a higher percentage of responders overall, but again, when looking at the green part of the bar, we're seeing a higher proportion of patients being able to achieve that stringent, complete response. And in the DARA group, that was 28.9% versus 20.3% in our triplet. And that um, depth of response continued to deepen at each of the times that patients were assessed. When looking at some of our other survival outcomes, um, progression-free survival had not been reached in either of the groups at an 18-month interim analysis. However, the quadruplet regimen of DARA-VTD has resulted in a 47% reduction in the risk of progression. We don't have any overall sur survival data at this point with our, with our um, follow-up only going out of about 18 months. So that's when we can really look to our MRD negativity as a surrogate marker for overall survival. And we can see here that, again, rates of MRD negativity did significantly favor our quadruplet regimen. Subgroup analyses for this trial, we had favorable results for the quadruplet across all subgroups, including patients with high-risk cytogenetics. And again, with our safety outcomes, we really didn't find any new safety outcomes that we didn't already know from the Alcyone trial, so very similar levels of neutropenia, infection, and neuropathy, and again, about a 4% incidence of our infusion reactions, which is to be expected. And so our takeaways from this Cassiopeia trial is that the quadruplet regimen of DARA-VTD did significantly improve progression-free survival as well as MRD negativity at that 18-month follow-up. Addition of daratumumab, again, did not significantly impact our safety outcomes, nor did it impact our rates of successful transplantation. But again, similarly to our Alcyone trial, unfortunately this was conducted in Europe, and over there thalidomide is their kind of immunomodulatory agent of choice. It's more readily available and cost-effective for them. However, here in the United States, we very rarely and seldomly utilize thalidomide. And again, thinking back to the pharmacology, lenalidomide is an analog of thalidomide that has differing levels of potency and differing toxicity profiles, and so they're really not comparable. And so unfortunately, the results from the Cassiopeia trial, again, are difficult to translate into our patients in the United States. And so ultimately, this led to the Griffin trial, which was published in 2020, that was conducted here in the United States. And so the Griffin trial was a phase two randomized control trial that included 207 patients with newly diagnosed myeloma. Again, similarly to the Cassiopeia, all patients in this trial were transplant eligible. 
They were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to either receive our quadruplet of daratumumab plus VRD, so the standard of care here in the United States, compared to VRD induction, both given for four cycles, and then the patients were sent for an autologous stem cell transplant. Again, patients received consolidation therapy here with our quadruplet and our triplet. And then for maintenance, patients were randomized in another phase two trial to receive either daratumumab alone or daratumumab in conjunction with lenalidomide. Primary endpoint for the Griffin trial was the same as our Cassiopeia, so a stringent complete response at the end of our post-transplant consolidation cycles. Again, for our baseline characteristics, they're almost identical to what we saw in the Cassiopeia trial. So median age of 59, majority of patients having a very good performance status, and about 15% of patients having high-risk cytogenetics. So the same graphical depiction here, but looking at VRD on the left versus Darren VRD on the right. And again, across the board, and even more so than what we saw in the Cassiopeia trial, we saw patients at the end of follow-up able to achieve those stringent complete responses, which is that green portion of the bar, our deepest level of response. And that occurred at every single one of our follow-ups um, and was significantly favoring our quadruplet at each of those assessments. Again, for this trial, we neither have progression-free survival nor overall survival data mature enough at this point. And so again, we point to MRD negativity. And so our daratumumab being our blue and our um, VRD triplet being our green. And even here, our rates of MRD negativity with our quadruplet regimen were significant at every single follow-up and continued to improve and deepen over time. Safety outcomes for this trial, again, quite similar. You will note kind of a staggeringly low percentage of infections reported in this trial. However, it was a much more narrow definition of infection than what was utilized in Cassiopeia and in the Alcyone, where they were really only including patients within a specific type of upper respiratory tract infection. Rates of peripheral neuropathy were similar, and again, infusion reactions occurring in about 6% of patients receiving daratumumab. And so our takeaways from the Griffin trial is that daratumumab, Velcade, Revlimid, Dexamethasone, our quadruplet, did improve stringent complete response, as well as MRD negativity at the furthest um, interim analysis of 18 months. The addition of daratumumab, similarly to what we saw in Cassiopeia, did not significantly impact safety, nor did it impact rates of successful transplantation. We are still waiting on overall survival results um, and progression-free survival. However, having that MRD negativity that was significant um, favoring our quadruplet is great. And so all of that together culminates into our patient case. And so our patient today, AS, is a 62-year-old female. She has newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Her ECOG performance score is zero, and she is deemed eligible for an autologous stem cell transplant. Her past medical history is pertinent for type 2 diabetes and hypertension, both of those being well-controlled currently. As part of her diagnostic workup, she is found to have a corrected calcium of 13.4, a creatinine clearance of about 75, she has 40% presence of plasma cells in the bone marrow, and she does have a deletion of 17P and translocation of 414, both present at diagnosis. And so the question, our next Poll Everywhere question, is which of the following is the most appropriate first-line treatment option for our patient AS? So option A is our doublet of lenalidomide and dexamethasone. Option C is our triplet of VMP, which is bortezomib, malfilan, and prednisone. Option C is our quadruplet of daratumumab in conjunction with VMP. And then finally, option D is our quadruplet of daratumumab with VRD.
Okay, so seeing a majority of the responders picking answer D, um, with um, some, some people um, picking option C as well. So kind of walking through this. So Revlimid and dexamethasone, option A of our doublet. This is incorrect. This would really only be an option for our transplant ineligible patients who are frail, maybe have a lot of comorbidities, excluding them from being able to be on at least a triplet. So this would be incorrect for our patient. She has a performance status of zero, is transplant eligible. Options B and C are both incorrect for similar reasons, and that's the inclusion of melphalan. So not only is VMP not commonly utilized in the United States, more commonly in Europe, it's also reserved for our transplant ineligible patients. Remembering that patients who undergo an autologous stem cell transplant are going to be receiving high-dose melphalan, and so we don't want to be giving that as part of our induction regimen. So option D, daratimumab, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone is the correct response in this setting. Our patient is transplant eligible. She does have presence of some high-risk cytogenetics. So it would be important for us to try to get the best level of response, the deepest level of response for this patient, to hopefully culminate as a long duration of response as well. And so with that, that wraps up to our conclusions. And so in conclusion, our four drug regimens have improved efficacy compared to our triplets in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. There are comparable incidents of, of toxicities when comparing our three and four drug regimens, really just with the inclusion of infusion reactions when adding the daratumumab. Maintenance therapy is ultimately going to impact our trial results. And so I kind of alluded to when walking through each of the trial designs, but if we think back, the Alcyone trial, half of the patients received daratumumab maintenance versus our triplet patients who just received active surveillance. And when we look at those patients at 36 months out, that maintenance therapy is going to have an effect on the depth and duration of response that we see. When we compare that to the Cassiopeia and to the Griffin trial, we again saw differing levels of randomization to either active surveillance in Cassiopeia versus daratumumab, or in our Griffin, all patients received daratumumab maintenance, whereas then half of the patients also received lenalidomide on top of that. And so that is something that we definitely need to keep in mind, especially as our three-year and five-year survival reports report out for these patients, is keeping in mind what type of maintenance therapy they received post-induction with either the triplet or the quadruplet. And then finally, longer follow-up is still needed to have results that are mature enough to show overall survival benefit. I think before a quadruplet regimen will really become the new standard of care. But remembering that per Mayo Clinic's current guideline for transplant-eligible patients with high-risk cytogenetics, we are recommending the use of our quadruplet regimen in that setting. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.